Hello and welcome to episode number five of the Radlib Gun Guy podcast. This is Nathan and the uh, podcast for today is uh, Prepping for the Shock Doctrine. This is March 24th, 2013. Uh, my email address if you'd like to contact me with criticisms, questions, uh, praise, flattery, whatever, is radlibgunguy at gmail.com. R-A-D-L-I-B-G-U-N-G-U-Y at gmail.com. And I also have a YouTube channel, uh, which is the Radlib Gun Guy channel. And mostly I just link to videos at this point. I do plan to create some uh, in the near future. Uh, in fact, I have one coming up where I'm going to demonstrate how a revolver, a simple six-shot hunting-style revolver, can be used uh, to uh, rapidly, you know, to to rapidly fire. I have some new speed loaders that I've never opened. I'll be opening them on camera. I've never owned any for this particular gun. I I did have one for an old gun, but I'll, I'll go into that in the video. And uh, I've got a new microphone. If anybody's listened to a previous episode, please give me any feedback. If you think that uh, this sounds better or worse, things like that. The old microphone was a super-duper cheap desktop microphone. And this is a slightly less cheap, super-duper uh, cheap desktop microphone. And uh, please let me know if the sound quality has improved or if there's any suggestions you might have for, for making it better. And just as a heads up, I am researching into finding a new podcast host because I realized that uh, I put the sound files on archive.org and it's not apparently compatible with iTunes, so I might be moving to Podbean or something like that. I, I'm not exactly sure which yet. I will do a couple of episodes uh, in parallel, and I may even keep doing them parallel indefinitely depending on the uh, archiving ability of whatever solution I choose. I don't have a lot of money to spend 30 bucks a month or whatever to get a large backlog. So I'll be announcing that when it comes up and, and give plenty of notice before uh, if this ever possibly shuts down. But I would like to get this on iTunes so that people can search and just you know come upon it. A lot of people get their pod podcasts through iTunes. So the topics for today. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the monsters, the monster that lives within us all, the, the, the vestigial crazy monkey that we, you know, we're all these hairless monkeys that have the, you know, kind of Neanderthal still living inside us. And we're going to talk about how we deal with those kind of, that kind of lizard brain and our fear and our anger and, and aggression and things like that. Healthy, what I think are healthy ways to deal with it and unhealthy ways to deal with it. Uh, we're going to talk about prepping. You know, there's those shows about, you know, doomsday preppers and things like that. We're, we're going to be talking about uh, a more mundane form of that that may be a good communitarian use of that particular type of mindset and some of the benefits that accrue when people have that kind of prepper mindset that applies to both, you know, prepping for self-defense and uh, kind of that mindset in general of, you know, I'm going to have some extra food and water and things like that. And, and we'll get into why, uh, why I think that that can be good as a, as, as a left wing tool, as just a general life skill. Um, and then we'll talk about shock doctrine uh, and the culture wars. So let's go ahead and start out with the, the monsters inside us, right? Uh, you know, one of the things that we have to admit 
is, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot, and, and I hate to say, I, I agree with it, but like the liberal that I am, there's a little bit of nuance to it, is people always say, I want to live in a world where people don't need guns to defend themselves, right? Where people don't need to use guns on each other. I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. The problem is that that world doesn't necessarily exist. Uh, if you haven't checked out samharris.org, unfortunately, there's a lot of these, a lot of the people that I mention have some kind of like country music singer or somebody that has the same name. So samharris.org, uh, and it's O-R-G, right? Dot com is the, like some country music or pop singer or something like that. So when you look for Sam Harris, look for Sam www.samharris.org. And he has some articles that he's written on guns and self-defense. And I agree with some of the things he says. I disagree with some of the things he says. But it's a well, for the most part, a well thought through argument. And I really suggest looking at it because he talks about the the moral and ethical things. Like, for instance, he doesn't. He doesn't think ethically a world, you know, removing guns from our society is a good thing because then basically the young and the strong dominate. And he gives some really great examples of, for instance, the um, some excerpts from a, an interview with some street thugs in Great Britain and what they what they think like. Uh, so basically, what are these things inside us that we have to worry about? Right. So we have the good things that we like to think of. We have our compassion and our empathy and things like that. But but deep down, we also have fear. We have anger, right? And and both of those things interact. Like we said, sometimes fear can turn into anger. And, you know, so we have these, we have this, this you know, when, when I used to teach Kung Fu when I was a kid, we, I used to I used to tell the teenagers that you have this, this junkyard dog or this, this, this animal inside you. And if it's too emaciated and weak, or if it's not under control, what it can do is it can either hinder you from defending yourself, right? Or it can cause you to lash out inappropriately, right? So by not learning to own it and control it, you end up with either you inappropriately punch somebody in the face because you disagree with them, or, you know, act out violently and lash out at people verbally, or you... Or you become timid and afraid of that thing inside you, and that manifests itself in, you know, passive-aggressive behavior and over-timid, you know, being overly timid in situations where you need to assert yourself and things like that. So the idea is you need to train that monster inside you to be your guard dog. You need it to, you need to be able to set it loose when you need to defend yourself, when you need to protect yourself, your family, whether it be... Uh, you know, verbally, legally, or physically, it's nice to have, it's very useful to have control over that facility within us to be able to turn it into a, you know, turn it into a guard dog or turn it into a, you know, a, to, to basically keep it under control so that it doesn't control us, right? So, uh, so there's some constructive ways to deal with things like aggression and fear and, and stuff like that. So there's there's outlets for your aggression, right? So a heavy bag, you do a competitive sport, you do some boxing, some martial arts, whatever. You go into a controlled environment where it's a healthy expression of your 
your your anger and frustration. That's what I did when I was about 12. I got into uh, I started with uh, Gojo Ryu Karate, and then I did a little bit of Taekwondo, and then I got into uh, a, a form of uh, kind of a mixed martial art. I'll call it Kung Fu because that's kind of what they call it. And basically, that was an outlet for me. That that was the end of my fights because it did two things. It helped me confront my fear. So I didn't feel like I had to hit first because I didn't know what to do once the fight started, right? One of the things that you one of the things that people would, will do when they're afraid sometimes is they'll they'll lash out first because they think if things are going bad and I'm losing control of my uh, emotions and my composure, I better lash out first so that I don't get hurt, right? I better get the jump on this thing. Whereas with that extra confidence, that extra skill, you you confront that fear, you harness it and put it into something constructive that imp- that improves you physically and mentally to the point where you can control it, right? Competitive sports, that's another way. You know, you go out and you you, you, you run it out. You, you go out and you, you race, you tackle each other on the football field, wrestle, you know, play basketball, whatever. It's a good outlet for that competitive you know, you get done, you feel, you know, you, that endorphin high from the physical activity of it. And so that's a good uh, outlet for that. That's basically a release valve to keep that anger, uh, keep anger and things from, from, from building up inside you, right? So every now and again, uh, it, it, you know, we like to say, people like to say, I don't feel hate for anybody. I don't feel anger for anybody. But, you know, I think to be honest... While, while we all strive for that, sometimes I wish I could punch, you know, one of my bosses or, you know, somebody at work or the, that guy in traffic. I wish I could just punch him in the face, right? I own it. I know that that's what's in me. And so I know that I need to bottle it up for now, but I need to find a way to release that later on, right? I need to go back home and I need to hit my heavy bag, kick it really good, get it out of my system, go and spar wrestle whatever the you know roll and do some jujitsu or whatever the case may be to get that out of my system uh, i actually had for a while these little they're like the little squeezy things that you use to uh to work your grip and to kind of they, they give them out at workplaces to kind of get over carpal tunnel and stuff it helps build up your wrist and your fingers to kind of go against the carpal tunnel syndrome that you get from working on a computer all the time and I found that those made really good targets because you could shoot them over and over again and the bullet would just pass through it into the dirt behind it. And so that was one of the ways that I let out my frustration with work is take the stuff with my company logo all over it out and, and use it like a little bouncer target. You shoot it and it bounces and then when it lands, you shoot it again. And and uh, and again, it was just an, it was an outlet. It was a way of dealing with the frustrations that I had at the time, the way of finding a controlled environment to let those things, to let that out, to release that fear and anger from my body, and uh, and and put my mind at ease, so I could go back in, you know, after that weekend and go do what I had to do, and not be a you know a, a simmering pot of anger, right? So there's also you know when you look at the preparations that you do to con- confront fear, you know, you look at some of the bad things that can happen to you in life, and you you might physically prepare for those. So physical preparation, 
to get over fears would be bringing some space blankets or something, bringing a little survival kit with a few power bars in it and some and a bottle, a couple of bottles of Gatorade or water or whatever, uh, and a couple, you know, just a basic survival kit in your car with you when you go out to the woods to go hiking, right? So you're you're, you're trying to get over the fear of what if I get two flat tires and I only have one spare, those kind of things, right? So you've got physical tools that would be the kind of thing where you know you purchase a gun for home defense or to conceal carry uh, food supplies first aid those are things that you do to prepare and they may not prepare you for a hundred percent of problems but you deal with it in a way that you say all right so i'm going to deal with this fear and confront it so that i can so that i can bring it down to a reasonable level Without simply denying it, I own the fact that I'm afraid that I might get mugged. I've been threatened with a knife and with a gun and outnumbered in many dicey situations in the past. So I know that it can happen to me because it already has. So what I'm doing is I'm saying, you know, what are the what's the what's the trade-offs that I'm going to make in my life? What are the what, what's the responsibilities I'm going to take on and the expense in time and energy and mental preparation that I'm going to do to physically have what I need, the tools that I need to get out of my house if there's a fire, to protect my family against an intruder, to protect myself against a mugging, things like that. That comes with a, a mental preparation, right? So I can have a fire extinguisher and a little ladder to get out of the second floor if the stairs are burning or whatever. But it's kind of like a fire drill at work, right? I need to prepare ahead of time before the fire alarm's going off. I need to know the exit to the building. One of the things that when we're talking about self-defense and dealing with terrible situations like mass shooting, uh, muggings, you know, attempted, you know, people trying to rape, rob, murder, things like that, is you have to confront some ugly choices. And it's good to confront those before you have a knife in your face. It's good to con confront those before somebody's pointing a gun at you or trying to tackle you on a jogging trail or before you know the the if a woman's on a date with a man before he starts ripping the clothes off after you've already said no you figure out what your you need to mentally prepare yourself for that worst case scenario for that bad scenario that you know what what am i willing to do it's not just about what do i know how to do do i know kung fu do i have a you know, pepper spray, do I have a gun, a knife, whatever. Not just the procedure of how to get yourself out of that situation, but what am I willing to do? Am I willing to kill somebody? Am I willing to use, am I willing to use pepper spray on somebody, right? So I have to think that through. I have to think that through in the context of the people that depend on me. Would I rather my children grow up without a father? Or would I rather... Uh, use deadly force to make sure that I come home to my family and continue to care for them. You know, those are things that we have to go through. We have to deal with, you know, what are our limits of what we will do to survive? What are our limits to, uh, of what we will do to protect our family, right? There was a, a great quote. I, I forget who they said it was. It was on the, it was one of, on the, uh, Joe Rogan podcast. They, one of these comedians was saying that, uh, they were talking to another comedian, and he had said, when I saw my son, when I saw my child born, he says, that's when I knew I could kill a man. And what he meant by that is 
the bond that he felt when he saw that baby and he, the, the responsibility, the awesome responsibility he felt to that child that he was holding in his arms was, I have to do whatever it takes to make sure that this baby is taken care of. I have to do whatever it takes, no matter how traumatic, you know, it, that, it, it wasn't that he was like, oh, great, I'm going to go out and stab somebody. It was like, I now know that if somebody tried to hurt this baby, I would defend this baby with my life. And so the mental preparation is important so that you know you, you can't go through this kind of moral quandary when somebody's slashing at you with a knife. You can't go through it when the guy jumps into your car with you at a stoplight. It's just not, that's not where it can, it can be done. And we're going to talk about that later on as the, you know, the shock doctrine portion is you can't make these decisions in the heat of the moment. You need to, you need to examine them and make them before, or at least acknowledge that if you refuse to do that beforehand, that you are taking that risk, right? That if I decide that I'm just not going to contemplate what's going to happen if somebody breaks in my house, I have to own it. And I have to say, you know what, I'm just going to hope that doesn't happen. But to pretend like that's actually dealing with it, I think, is 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 is, is false. The other thing that we'd have to deal with is, uh, th that's good to deal with, is the aftermath. You know, some of the things that, uh, some of the tools and videotapes and stuff like that that, that talk about self-defense uh, say it's a really good idea for you to know what's going to happen after this all happens. So... Let's say some guy comes at me and I punch him in the throat and he dies. Right? I'm just trying to protect myself. I use the maximum deadly force. I shoot the guy. I stab the guy. You know, he comes trying to tackle me. I throw him off a cliff. Right? I redirect him off the cliff. What am I going to do afterward? That's a good thing to contemplate beforehand. Right? So that you don't get yourself in more trouble and more danger. Uh, you don't stand there with a, you know, holding a deadly weapon when a police arrive because they react poorly to that. You know, what are you going to do afterwards? So these are the kinds of things that you do when you confront these situations in your mind and you game them out as you play the, you know, the scenario out. You look at what can go good and what can go bad. You know, what's going to happen if the guy stabs me before I know what's going on and my arm, my left arm doesn't work or my right arm doesn't work? Do I know what I'm going to be able to do? So you don't always play these out as, you know, the guy starts out 100 feet away with a knife and holds it above his head and goes, I'm going to kill you, right? You think? You have to imagine that the guy came up, he already stabbed you. What are you going to do? Right? So so that's a, the, a practical part of it. But the the spiritual, mental part of it is, like I said, you got to determine what are you willing to do and in what situations. So you play some of those out. What am I going to do if I'm looking out the window and somebody's breaking into my car versus what am I going to do if they bust down my front door and my family's in the house? Those are things that I would deal with separately in my mind and try and figure out, okay, what, what, what would it take for me to use deadly force to confront the person, so on and so forth. And it's a way of confronting the fear and dealing with it, owning the fact that I'm afraid of certain things. This also applies in other places. The idea of making a decision about how you would behave in an emergency or in some kind of high stress environment prior to dealing with that high stress environment. So for instance, you know, one of the things that we talked about in my martial arts training was you decide prior to an argument with your family 
prior to your children acting up or whatever. You decide, I will never hit my, my, you know, I will never hit my spouse. I will never, whatever. And it sounds weird to have to say that. But it's, but it's, it's a very, you know, adult way of handling it. It's, a very, it's basically saying, I'm going to resolve some things that no matter how much, no matter how angry I am, I've decided ahead of time, what are the limits that I'm going to go? Am I going to spank my kids? Am I going to smack them on the face? Am I going to, you, you make that decision ahead of time. This is some, these, these are my boundaries that I will never cross. Right. And that way, when you do get in that knockdown drag out argument, just not necessarily physically knockdown, but you get in that, just, oh, you know, your mother-in-law pisses me off and blah, and you're screaming at each other or whatever, or you're, you're getting to that level. You, 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 your adrenaline's going, you're upset. It's really good to have before that time resolved what your limits are, what kinds of words you're going to use in an argument with your family, what kinds of <clears throat> reactions you're going to allow yourself to have. Because if you wait and don't think about the fact that you and your spouse or whatever can fight, you know, arguments, I mean, if you don't, if you don't think about that ahead of time, there's a possibility that things could escalate and words can be said or, you know, physical acts can occur because you weren't mentally prepared for when you're in that high stress environment. So it's just a good exercise to kind of game, not just, you know, that, thug with a knife but what's going to happen when you know what are my what's my limit if uncle joe at the family reunion gets drunk and starts calling my japanese wife racial racial slurs where am i going to go with that i know ahead of time where i'm going to go with that so that because i know i have uncles that will say some pretty shitty things and so i <laughs> i have to deal with that ahead of time and know where i'm going to go with it so that i don't lose it and you know cause something to get a lot worse and that's also why, you know, for instance, you teach the law of war to soldiers before they get into the combat zone, right? You teach them in boot camp. You teach them in peacetime. These are the laws of war. You teach police officers. You don't teach them on the job what they're going to do, you know, how much force they're going to use on, a, on, a, on somebody. You want to teach them beforehand so that they know what their, what their limits are before they're in that high-stress situation before they're in that adrenaline-filled situation where they've got somebody struggling with them. They know when they're supposed to stop using deadly force or batons or whatever and are mentally prepared to deal with that stressful situation before they get in it. Now, there are limits, of course, to all these things. So... There's a level where this preparation is empowering, right? So I, the example I, I like to give, for, for instance, for, for self-defense is, you know, maybe, maybe you're not into owning a gun, right? But let's say you go to the gym four times a week. You're into fitness. Maybe you'll replace a spinning class with a jujitsu class, and that's a good workout, and it's... You know, you work up a sweat, you burn your calories, you build your body, but it also has that utilitarian function that helps you deal with that particular problem without a huge cost to you. You know, you were going to go to the gym anyway, so instead of going to the spinning class, you went to the jujitsu class. 
you went to the boxing class, you went to the, you know, the, the karate class or whatever, right? You, you, you did something that you find to be, to help with your fear of, you know, living in a world that still has violence, as rare as it is, you know, you, 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 you know that somebody might try to hurt you. So that's, it, it's an empowering way of improving your defenses against that without being paranoid and devoting your life to going to the range every single day after work and carrying a gun and a backup gun and a gun on each, you know, you're not carrying like a, an arsenal on you. You just got, you know, you, you, you find that level of, of self-protection and preparedness that allows you to continue with your daily life and take your kids to soccer practice and so on and so forth. But you found a way to prepare for some of the, the, the eventualities that, that come up. Paranoid, you know, would be, you know, somebody who, you know, builds a nuclear bunker in their garage or something like that. Uh, and again, we, we all accept risk and the cost of this preparation, there's a trade-off between them, right? So if I lived in a really bad neighborhood, and I had to for some reason, then I would probably put a much higher priority on filling out my firearms, uh, my firearms list than I have now. Right now, it's not the number one thing on my mind. I have, a fi- I have firearms, and they're suitable for defense. I am planning on filling it out with some better firearms for defense. But in the meantime, I have the tools to do the job. And I'm just, you know, within the context of my daughter's getting ready to get her driver's license or her driver or learner's permit in a couple of months. And, and, you know, my kids both have after school activities and things like that. They need school clothes. And, you know, I'm not letting my kids go threadbare so that I can get the latest and greatest firearm because I recognize that kind of trade-off between the risks and the preparation. So it's part of my life, it's integrated into my life, but it's not a dominant force in my life. Now, the other way besides, you know, confronting our, our anger, our fear, is to kind of just deny them. And then they leak out in other ways, right? So culture wars is one of the ways that it does in the gun debate. You know, so I'm afraid of guns. I don't understand them. I don't like them. I associate them with violence and crime. And so I'm going to lash out against anybody I know who might own one. I'm going to be scared of my neighbors. I'm going to, you know, call people bad names, lump them all together. I'm going to, you know, it's kind of like the homophobic person that's actually a gay right so you get like that that preacher that we see once a week or whatever that's that's just vehemently anti-gay it's because he doesn't own what's inside himself he doesn't own the fact he doesn't say you know what this is what i am i'm going to integrate who i am and this this inner quality of myself into my life instead i'm going to deny it suppress it and it's going to leak out as a toxic gas is just this toxic effect out on society uh you know so you know when i'm talking to some people that are anti-gun and stuff and stuff like that they tend to be 
they can tend to be very, you know, like it was funny because I was talking to a guy who, who was saying uh, that he, his mother never owned a gun. She never let him point his finger like a gun. Right? He wasn't supposed to play cops and robbers or anything. This guy had his hand in my face half the time we were talking. His violence, his 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 own fear and anger about the topic, his own you know terror of these tools was manifesting itself as what you know was somewhat threatening behavior. Now I'm a trained you know like I said I'm a trained martial artist and stuff like that, so I was able to remain calm. I'm not going to freak out as soon as you know. This guy wasn't, I didn't perceive this guy to be a real threat and I, you know, or anything like that. I wasn't going to get hot headed and punch him in the face or anything, you know, but it was, he had his hands in my face and he was raising his voice really loud and just, Rah! and again, what it was is he didn't own the fact that yes, you get angry. Yes. You, sometimes he, he, he gets angry in his daily life and he has fear in his daily life. He just wanted to deny that part of himself and it ended up leaking out in the middle of basically a uh it was a, a drinking liberally uh function where you know we were just having a conversation over beers around a table we each had a beer and we're you know talking about liberal politics and i managed to bring up you know the uh, somebody said how can there be log cabin republicans and i was like i'm a pro second amendment liberal and then everybody was like ah how can you possibly be but uh, basically, one of the things that happens is you get this kind of paranoia and this phobia based on not confronting your fears. So, so you end up with people who are just, you know, have this terror of their neighbors and so forth. And they, they start to come up with these, you know, ultimate no-win scenarios of, of what happens if their neighbors get guns and their neighbors are going to freak out and kill them and... And if I had a gun, I would shoot people if I, you know, it's, it's ridiculous stuff that all comes from not acknowledging and dealing with their fear. And it, it ends up leaking out as them reducing their opinion of everybody around them. They start to, they start to talk as if their neighbors are all going to lash out and, and, and hurt them somehow. And just because they, like I said, they don't have that constructive outlet for their fear. So what I always recommended to my students in that teens class that I taught and so forth was to train that inner beast to be tame when it otherwise would want to lash out, but to be your, your guard dog when needed, to, to be ready to, to launch a coordinated defense of yourself and the people and the things that you love when needed. You know, one of the things that my teacher used to always say was, uh, in my Kung Fu teacher was that people come in because they're afraid. They come in because they are afraid somebody's going to beat them up and they stay because they find friendship and camaraderie and kinship with all these people that they train with. And that's what keeps them there. They get over the fear and they turn it into, you know, they turn that, that, that fear opens them up to be able to love more people. Because once you get that fear out of the way, they can open up their, their hearts. Once they've brought down 
once they once they feel that extra confidence and they've built those extra relationships it just it, it enhances their life overall now the next the next thing we're going to go into here is 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 prepping okay because this is a similar a similar impulse a similar and it's also similarly ridiculed now when we talk about prepping we're looking at uh you know, sometimes we're looking at extremes. We think of those folks on the reality TV show that have a nuclear bunker under their garage with a vent in it and all that other good stuff, right? That's really not what I'm talking about, though that exists. Just like, you know, I, I, I know that some people really do want to have a literal arsenal of firearms and some people just have multiple firearms. And like I said, we're going to go into that eventually. We're going to look at why would I want to own six or seven guns? I think I'm probably going to end up with in my basic toolkit, you know, but there's some guys who really just want to have 500 guns for in some of them for paranoid reasons. That's true. The prepping you know, I, I've thought for a long time, and I still do to some extent think that excessive individual prepping, you know, when you have the mindset, not just the stuff, but the mindset of I'm going to create a fortress, an impenetrable fortress, and I'm going to take care of myself because people are all going to go nuts and the government's going to go bad and so on and so forth. I think what that can do is when I, what I've usually told people is if you put as much energy and time and resources into improving your community as you did preparing for its breakdown, you might actually prevent that breakdown from ever occurring, right? But there is a level of, of preparedness that's a calculated risk, you know, that's, that's a sensible and I believe a, a beneficial amount of preparation. Just like I think it's, pre it's, it's better if you're a woman, if you're a person who lives in a high-risk area, or just in general, I think it's good for you to take a little bit of time out of your, out of your life to say, all right, what can I do to prepare for unlikely or, or low-probability events that could cause big problems? And I think that there's a lot of positive ex externalities of that. And you also take the collect, you know, the calculated risk, for instance, if you were to prep and store up food and supplies and things like that in case of an emergency, perhaps the flood would flow down your street and take out your house. Perhaps a gas explosion would blow it up. Perhaps a tree would fall on it, right? It, it's all possible that, you know, your preparation is for naught. But it's kind of like having a flotation device inside an airplane under your seat. You know, more than likely, if you land on the water, you're going to die. But in case you live, it's good to make sure that you have the basics you need to 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 survive that initial. You know, once you've managed to survive the initial part of that catastrophe, it's good to have some tools available to help you survive until help comes. Now, one of the great things about people who do some, what you would call prepping, right? They have 
maybe a bug out kit. They have uh, a store of canned goods, dry goods, some uh, emergency water supply, cooking fuel, that sort of thing. Maybe they would have a plan on how to turn the gas off in their house in the event of an earthquake or something to hope, hopefully prevent, you know, something bad from happening after, you know, after that. But just a basic survival plan and some some of the equipment and tools and, and planning to to deal with that should it occur. It frees people to help others out. So when we talk about like Scandinavia and how much more charity there is in Scandinavia than there is in the United States is that most of them already have their basic needs met. So if I know that if I lose my job, I'm not completely screwed, then, you know, when the Girl Scouts come around, I'll buy an extra box of cookies. When, you know, I see that Ronald McDonald house, I'll put an extra dollar in there because I know that I can spare it because I don't have to hoard for the eventuality that my society is going to leave me behind if I lose my job or if I get injured or whatever, right? So they, they tend to be more charitable, and that's created by that societal preparedness. The While the preparedness of things like FEMA and stuff like that is something we should always push for, we should always say, you know what, we need to have, since we have all this you know military logistical hardware, we should be ready to use that. In the case of an earthquake or a flood or a hurricane or whatever, we should be ready to, you know, spring into action with that and help out our, our neighborhoods that are affected to keep, you know, people from, from, from suffering any more than is absolutely necessary. But in the meantime, the people who do have, uh, who do have food, water, fuel, basic medical supplies, uh, maybe a, a, a slight surplus of prescription drugs that their family might need. You know, if your kid's got really bad allergies, it's good to have some allergy medication in the house just in case, you know, things get cut off because of a, like I said, a natural disaster, earthquake, whatever. But one of the things that it does is it frees you to help your neighbor. So if I've got food and water and my basic needs taken care of, then it frees me to go help my neighbors dig, you know, their, you know, their father out of the house because he's pinned under something. It frees me to, rather than being completely focused and terrified for my own family and my own safety, it gives me that, that freedom to say, well, my family's got what they need for their security, their food, their heat, their, you know, their warmth, their shelter. We've got what we need. That Maslow's hierarchy of needs allows me that extra mental freedom to, to, to be helpful in that situation. It's one less person that needs to, you know, if they're, if they're a little bit short on water and I've got 50 gallons in my garage, I can say, yeah, just give it to my neighbor and I'll, you know, I'll get some from the next, next shipment if all we can get is a, you know, a couple bottles of water each or whatever. It, it frees up uh, the first responder or the emergency resources for, for people who are in worse shape than me and so on and so forth. I'm one less person that you have to that you have to worry about. One less family, hopefully. And there's also a there's a social benefit even without the natural disaster of somebody who's prepared. And we'll go into this a little bit more later. But just the the you know the the self defense training, 
carrying a firearm, stuff like that, has this social the social benefit for the person that's prepared is that they've dealt with their fear, they've confronted it, they've found ways to prepare themselves for the worst so that they can go about their lives being a little bit more confident. And the other thing is that if a natural disaster does hit, that person who's prepared with food, water, uh, medical supplies, and so forth is more likely to help you know, people who are panicking to stay calm. And if we have a good enough, if, if especially the better our FEMA and so forth, the better those resources are prepared and the more faith people have in them, there's even a chance that, you know, you might share the actual supplies you have with your neighbors. That right now is in doubt because of the previous performance of FEMA and so forth, because you know, if it looks like it's going to be weeks before we get food, I can't, I can't give away the water that my family would drink. You know, I can't give away the food that my family would eat because, you know, that's problematic. I may turn down some supplies when it comes down to it, but I, I, I probably wouldn't deplete my resources if I didn't think there was more coming in. So, so that's where this interacts with the, the shared, uh, the shared response is that being prepared, you know, frees up those resources and makes you more likely to cooperate because you're not worried about where your kids are going to get the next drink of clean water, you know. Uh, and there's also, you know, a concept of the bug out, right, which is basically the neighborhood is in shambles, the bridges all fell down in the, you know, the big earthquake, you know, that sort of thing things are really, really bad, uh, people may want to have the option, at least available, even if they don't use it right away, of bugging out, right? So if my neighborhood's descending into chaos, it may be better for me to take my family with our bug out kit and go to, you know, go to my brother's house in, in another state or, you know, go to a relative or friend that lives outside of the disaster zone uh, in order to ride it out from there, right? So this isn't necessarily zombie apocalypse stuff. You know, this is, you know, there's a major earthquake that destroys, you know, in my case, the Portland-Vancouver area is devastated or just Vancouver or whatever. I might want to go to go outside of that area to to find safety because, there's some sort of breakdown of law and order within this this area, and that can happen. That happened with Katrina. That happened with, you know, that's happened several times. So what that does is, rather than me being stuck with my family here in in our current location, where we might have to use violence to fend off, you know, looting and things like that of our of our critical supplies. We would say, you know what, our supplies are getting low or, or you know, it just looks like it's getting too violent. Perhaps the best thing is to extricate ourselves from that. And just having that option available, you know, I, what I have for my prepping is a, you know, a three-part plan. So you have the house level, which would be a large storage uh, that, that could potentially hold weeks is what we're working up to, to where we actually have weeks worth of food. Uh, food and and you know water water plus water purification and things like that. Uh, several canisters of propane, cooking fuel, stuff like that. 
The other thing is the next level down would be the car. That would be a couple of boxes and some backpacks that we would throw in the back of the car, and that would be our kit to get us, you know, through tr the traffic jams or whatever to get us out. And if things were to go bad in the car, the ro there's a road out, a traffic jam that's a traffic snaggle that's just so terrible that, again, people are getting violent or whatever. Rather than, you know, try to play OK Corral there, we would grab our bug out backpacks and try to go around the washed out road or whatever on foot. And that would include, you know, backpack would have a couple of days worth of food, shelter, water, some cash for when we get out of the disaster area so we can get a rental car, maybe a motel room, something, some things along those lines to get us to where, to get us outside of that disaster area. And that's, that's my basic prepping kit that I'm looking at building. And, and we've already started, and, and like I said, we're not obsessing over it, but my wife and I have, have really looked at that after Fukushima and all these other, uh, you know, American disasters, disasters around the world, and said, you know, what would we want to do if something really bad were to happen? What would we want to have available? Now, when we're talking about self-defense and disaster preparation and so forth, these are rare, relatively rare events for most people. Right, especially if you live in Hurricane Alley, hurricanes are, of course, a more likely event. If you live in California, Southern California, you're probably more prone to earthquakes than most of us. But in general, these are low probability events. But uh, and Sam Harris brings this up in his articles. It, it, you can't really look at it purely in statistical significance. These things have a much greater impact on us, on our psyche a social impact that outweighs their their raw statistical probability, right? So tyrannical government going overboard and starts disappearing people is a, is a somewhat rare or unlikely possibility, but if it happened, it would be really, really bad, and it's good to have some kind of, you know, some kind of plan for if something like that were to happen. Uh, natural disaster... Uh, and mass shootings, right? Terrorist attacks. Those things are bad, and there are things that we can do to prepare for them. And they may, you know, even though, you know, an airplane crash for purely pilot error or mechanical reasons may be more likely than a terrorist attack on an airplane, there's nothing saying, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that for our psychological well-being and so forth that we shouldn't devote any resources to preventing a terrorist attack or that we should only provide them the, you know, their, we should only weigh them based on the sheer, you know, numerical probability of them happening. Same with, like I said, mass shootings and so forth. They are disproportionately bad things when they do happen and they have disproportionate effects outside of just the people that are physically hurt or killed or lose family members they hurt, you know, the entire nation feels, you know, the shock and awe of that kind of terrible thing. And so they do warrant uh, a little bit disproportionate impact. You know, statistics would say that we could just about, you know, not even worry about school shootings. That's what the statistics would say. But obviously nobody believes that that's the way, and nobody that I know believes that that's the way we should handle them because when they do happen, they hurt all of us deeply. So, you know... The same type of mindset goes into uh, 
you know, the, the armed citizen who's preparing for a mugging, a burglary, an assault. Now, all of these are orders of magnitude more likely than a school shooting, for instance, or a workplace shooting or whatever that's a mass shooter kind of thing or a Timothy McVeigh or – I'm sorry. I, I tried – I'm going to try not to uh, – I'm try and implement the rule that we don't name the a-holes that – carry these things out, but, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing, things like that. But, it's while it's orders of magnitude more likely than that, it's still increasingly rare, right? They're, they're, those things are actually, for the, for the vast majority of the population at least, going down. We talked in the last episode a little bit about why there's, some of the reasons why there's some areas where they're disproportionately likely to happen, uh, and and why the, the knee-jerk reaction uh, doesn't necessarily serve us well in that case. Knee-jerk reaction is, you know, Ann Coulter comes on and says the white murder rate's lower than the black murder rate, or you know, the rural murder rate's lower than the city mur- murder rate, and she's saying it in the context of well, the problem is we got to get rid of all the, you know, get rid of all the brown people, and you know, of course, yeah, that's offensive. But the statistics she's looking at are true. She's just using them in a horrible, ugly, nasty way. But we can look at them in a way that highlights problem areas that we need to work on such as you know how do we handle poverty housing the drug war things like that in those hot spots of violence in our country and how do we turn those places that breed violence into places that nurture the human beings that live within them and and things like that but overall violence is on the decline in this country and that's a good thing uh, that doesn't, but 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 that doesn't, you know, that statistical, the raw statistical likelihood of me being stabbed by somebody at the bus stop doesn't decrease the tragic effect on me and my family and so on and so forth if it does happen to me. So, so there's still that level of preparing for a low probability, disproportionately bad situation. Uh, the you know with this prepping uh, prepping for violence, prepping for uh, armed self-defense. One of the things that we have to realize is there 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 are some positive externalities as we discussed a little bit in the prepping. There's a positive externality of uh, of me taking that martial arts class is that I was less likely to lash out at my fellow school children, my family members, my neighbor the neighbor kids, I was less likely to lash out because I dealt with my, I found a good outlet, a good harness for my fear and anger and things like that, right? With armed self-defense, there's also a positive externality to me simply defending myself and or my family, which is sometimes I will dissuade a shooter, I mean dissuade an attacker from attacking someone else. Right. If I show the gun and I scare the crap out of them, maybe they'll like it. Like I've said before, maybe they'll rethink this path of their lives and think, damn, I, I don't like doing these muggings anymore because sometimes dudes pull out guns and I might get shot. So, you know, I'm going to move out with my uncle out of town and try and figure something out or, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, maybe that that armed citizen shoots an attacker and that attacker no longer has uh, the wherewithal. They go to the hospital and, you know, or, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they die 
and they can't be rehabilitated, but maybe they, but basically the idea is that you might take them out of circulation. Uh, they get arrested, a citizen's arrest, that sort of thing. So there's that positive externality, which is the guy comes in my house, I point the gun at him and tell him not to move, the police arrive, they take him away to jail, he's not going to victimize somebody the next day, right? He or she, or most likely a he, unfortunately. We're going to go into the demographics of that pretty soon. Uh, I'm planning possibly the next episode to actually go into the demographic, who who is doing most of the killing and who what, what are they likely to look like in their life, and what are the, the victims of violent crime most likely to look like? Because there's some certain patterns there that, that it's good to know if we want to address it. But the, the other idea is that if I'm armed for my own self-defense, especially if I'm out by myself and not with my wife and kids, I might intervene on someone else's behalf. Oh, another oh, – we'll, we'll, we'll look into that in a second. If I'm out by myself – and I go to the store to, you know, I, I go to get some gas. And while I'm standing there, I see somebody getting chased by someone with a weapon. I see a woman screaming because some man's uh, attacking her or whatever. Having that firearm makes it a little bit more viable for me to intervene as a concerned, you know, good Samaritan, right? It, 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 it somewhat lowers my risk of intervening. So that I might actually, you know, the fact that I was carrying that gun to protect myself it might turn into, you know, and it often does, it turns into, you know, protecting somebody else in my community. And when we talk about, uh, I want to clarify something about when we talk about school staff or college students allowed to conceal carry. Um, it's not necessarily so much that you would expect if a kindergarten teacher had a snub nose revolver, you know, a little five shot 38 special or a little pocket 380 pistol or something that she's going to go out or he's going to go out and confront this guy who's armed to the teeth and things like that. But what you are looking at is that positive externality of them defending themselves and the people immediately around them. So let's look at a school sh or, or, or a mass shooting scenario, right? So I'm in the mall, and I'm carrying my concealed firearm, and some psycho comes in and starts shooting people up. If I'm going to fight that person, it's going to be because I and, I and or my family are, are in imminent danger. I'm not going to run toward him, right? I'm not going to run halfway through the mall and let my, leave my family unattended and things like that. I'm not a cop. I don't want to run toward it because the cops might be running toward it too. They see, they hear gunfire. They see me with a gun. They shoot me. There's always that mistaken identity problem. You know, there are things that have to be, like I said, that's one of the reasons why we think these things out. What am I going to do? So I don't do something stupid as well as doing something, you know, like revenge. You know, if you shoot somebody and they fall down and they're not a threat anymore, you don't do a revenge killing where you walk up and put a couple of more, pump a couple more rounds into the guy things like that but the other thing is is kind of thinking these situations through but let's say the store that i'm in is where that guy comes in and he shoots one of the tellers and he shoots another person another shopper and i pull my gun and I, I i shoot the guy and he falls down i'm gonna grab my family and get the hell out of there because i don't know if he's got an accomplice or whatever but if i did take him out if i did stop him from killing more people that's just a positive externality of me defending myself and my family that's kind of what the, the the kindergarten teacher analogy is or the college professor or the concealed carry student. 
and one of the things that that I think would be the special, the, the biggest special training requirement for, uh, for instance, if we were to let people, uh, especially elementary school students and stuff like that, not students. I mean, <laughs> I'm not. Don't don't quote me. I am not. <laughs> Not in any way saying that children should bring guns to school. So stop. All right. So let's say, you know, there's that teacher, there's that vice principal. They're not necessarily expected in my mind, even if we allow them to carry, to run into the sound of gunfire and, and, and try to take care of business. But one of the things that we do want them to learn as special training to prepare them for it uh, for that, you know, to, to carry in that environment is perhaps threat assessment. There are classes you can take for self-defense that, that aid you in assessing, you know, looking for the gun, looking for the knife when you're in a situation where there's multiple actors that are, some are violent and some are not. How do you assess which one is the threat so that you can hone in on them and, and only focus your, your energies toward them, be aware of your surroundings, uh, that's some of the, you know, some training that, that they could take. And a lot of times you can take some of that in, you know, it doesn't take years to learn that. There's there's training where people can take a day course or a couple of days or whatever and, and learn that. But the other thing that's really important for them to learn is something that I talked about earlier with the aftermath. So one of the problems that I have to solve after that guy breaks into my house and he's coming up the stairs and I... I come out of my room to get my kids into to, to, to huddle up with us so that we can hunker down. And I see that guy coming up the stairs. I tell him to stop. He keeps he pulls out his knife. I shoot him. Now he's laying there bleeding, maybe dead, whatever the case may be. I don't want to be standing there with a gun when the cops show up. If I can avoid it, I, 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 need, to, I need to figure out what I'm going to do so that when the cops come in, we don't exchange gunfire. I don't panic, they don't panic, that everybody knows who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And so that's part of the strategy when I'm talking to 911, when I'm doing all these other things. The other, an, in a related concern, is <clears throat> when there's a mass shooting, for instance, in a school. So this guy comes in, he starts shooting people up. One of the secretaries has a pistol in her, you know, has a pistol on her, she pulls it out, she shoots him. And she needs to know what happens when the cops arrive or she's or some you know teacher at the other end of the school has got a gun trained on the door just in case the shooter comes in to their classroom with with that person's students that his or her students they need to know how am I going to communicate with the police so when they come in and see a gun they don't shoot her right and that she knows not to shoot them and it's it's a training issue. It's something that needs that 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 would probably require uh, some communication, some training, so that they know how to deal with it. When uh, so that you know we, you don't have uh, what do they call it blue on blue. You don't have friendly fire, which is you know an, a valid concern. So that would be a big part of it. Is basically the the uh, identify friend or foe type of of training would really be the most important. I, I don't think many teachers would carry a gun into school if they were permitted to, you know, a concealed pocket pistol or something like that without going to the range and practicing a little bit. I, I think they're, they would, it would be easy to convey to them how 
important it was for them to know how to not shoot wildly. The biggest uh, thing, the biggest concern, the valid concern to look at in that case in a, in a very sensitive environment like that is, okay, you've defended your classroom, now let's keep this, if you've successfully defended your classroom, let's keep it so that it doesn't turn ugly when the police arrive. And that's something that, that's why I think that they would want to have a program to work with the local police department if they were going to exercise concealed carry inside a school is to to make sure that, again, the police don't come in and think that the teacher is the shooter and vice versa. They want to have that their signs and signals and so forth worked out. Now, <clears throat> we talked about how these things are disproportionately impacting. These things hurt really bad when they happen. They're rare, but they're really bad. There's a book by Naomi Klein called The Shock Doctrine. Okay? And uh, it's The Shock Doctrine, the, the Rise of Disaster Capitalism. What, what it, the basic th premise, the basic thesis that the book puts, puts forward and the evidence that it presents to support is that there are people with unpopular ideas that they think are the ideal, right? In her case, she's talking about Milton Friedman and his ilk, how they think, you know, all schools should be privatized and social safety nets are harmful and things like that. Unfortunately for them, the people generally like to have things like retirements they like to have schools for every for, for all their children, things like that. The shock doctrine is basically the the basic premise of it is that when you have these unpopular ideas, what you do ideas, what you do is you develop them, you document them, and you kind of put them on simmer, and you just kind of kind of spread them around and kind of get to the cultural elites the academics, the politicians, and so forth, and kind of just, they're aware of these ideas, and these ideas are laying around, ready to go. They can't implement them under normal circumstances, because people don't want them, but they're just simmering. Then a shock is created, exploited, or even faked, in some cases. So, 9-11, you get the Patriot Act, and similar things that have come out of it. The war on terror in general is just one big shock doctrine technique after another to implement targeted kill lists and indefinite detention and things like that, that that are things that law enforcement may have wanted but could never get through. Now the FBI or wh whoever can get powers that they never dreamed of, but they just had them laying around, things that have been rejected in the past that they exploited the shock and the awe and the pain and the suffering and the terror of 9-11 to get that through. The Iraq War, that was something that Bush, it's well documented, Bush wanted to do that before he even came into office. The fact that we were still reeling from 9-11 allowed him to get the Iraq War started. And then in turn, in Iraq, many changes were made in Iraq that were basically from a created shock. Because we invaded them and took out their entire government, then we, you know, the, the U.S. government put in a constitution that they never would have voted on, uh, you know, certain tax rates and oil uh, deals and things like that that never, that, that probably never would have made it through had they been democratically uh, put up for debate and a vote. 
then we have natural disasters uh, like Hurricane Katrina, uh, Sandy, things like that, where you have a natural disaster and it's not necessarily caused, but or it's not caused directly at least. There was some negligence involved, but that could be said of a lot of these things. 9-11, people can, can make the argument that there was negligence in dealing with that threat, but you know, even in the best good faith assessment that they just couldn't have seen it coming, there's no doubt that they exploited it afterward. Pearl Harbor, you know, one of the things a lot of people don't know is, you know, Roosevelt had a few times where he tried to have his uh, Lusitania moment. Lusitania is another one, World War One, uh, where he had, you know, American destroyers deep in Chinese territory where there was, you know, uh, conflict going on between China and Japan, and then Japan sees these ships and bombs them. And he says, oh, look, our destroyers, our innocent destroyers right in the middle of the battle zone were attacked, and, and people kind of called it bullshit on it. They said, yeah, yeah, well, why did you put them right in the middle of an active war zone if you didn't expect them to get attacked? And so it wasn't until Pearl Harbor, because he wanted to get into the war, and the people just weren't behind it. And then there's the Gulf of Tonkin, which is one that was uh, pretty much fabricated to create that. Oh my God, they attacked our innocent ships when they were sitting right off their shore. You know, it was it was basically a fabricated incident that led to acceptance of the idea that we needed to go to war. And uh, you know, when we when people are in a state of shock, they're they may be open to change. They may be distracted. So they might be looking, you know, if, if in the case of Katrina, a lot of people were just worried about how they were going to get off the roof of their house that was, you know, underneath, you know, the the overflow of Lake Pontchartrain. Or they're getting out of town because their home has been destroyed, their neighborhood's been destroyed, they're going to go find a host family or a relative and, you know, throughout the country. Or they're outraged and ready to act on emotion, like Pearl Harbor. It pissed everybody off, and and so hey, now you know this war that you didn't want. Let's go do it, and everybody's like, ah, fuck them. And then there's the uh, there's the fear and the trauma where people, you know, kind of had that you know look to daddy for help kind of reflex because their life's been turned upside down, and they may be a little bit more trusting in that time because of the trauma caused by it. And this is how, you know, the, one of the examples that Naomi Klein gave was in Chile, you know, we, we, we helped, you know, with the coup that happened there, the population was in that state of shock, and they implemented all these super, uh, under Pinochet, they, they, they put in all of these uh, reforms that were like, you know, free, what was it, like privatized retirement accounts, and they got rid of their, you know, they... they they went in to get rid of public schools and all these other things that, that would have otherwise never p passed muster with the population. In Katrina, you know, they, they, they took things that were, you know, housing, public housing projects and things like that were destroyed. They, they decided they weren't going to do them anymore. They uh, turned a lot of their schools into voucher schools. All of these things because the people were worried where they're going to get their next drink of potable water. Right. The people were worried about where they were going to sleep outside of the rain that night because their house was destroyed. And in the meantime, you have lobbyists just 
swarming the capital saying, hey, let's do this, let's do that. And so you get things that passed that otherwise never would have passed muster under regular circumstances because people would have debated them and they would have turned them down. They would have, they, they just weren't popular. Uh, and people end up regretting some of them afterward and some of them even while they're happening, some people even regret them while they're happening. But because of the shock and awe, they're able to get enough public support and enough public understanding and, and kind of a free pass to get them through the Patriot Act, the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, Vietnam, things that we later realize probably weren't the greatest idea. But because of that shock, they went through and got started. And once they get started, they kind of take on a life of their own. There was a guy uh, on This Is Hell a couple weeks ago who basically called our uh, relationship with contractors and their influence over future war making as a self-licking lollipop. <laughs> Basically, you, you, you create this, this, this fire that's so big it feeds itself and can't, can't be put out readily. And so once you get into Iraq, it's hard to get out. Once you get into Afghanistan or Vietnam or whatever, it could take years to turn that around. But once you've got that shock that allows you to get that foot in the door, it's on and, you know, it's basically uh, you've exploited that fear and that terror and that trauma to make it happen. Now, we talked about prepping and... Where does that fit into all of this? Okay, so by prepping, let's say I've got several weeks worth of food. I've just got this, I've got, you know, or, or at least at least a couple of weeks worth of food. Like we could literally live off of what's in my garage for two or three weeks. One of the things that does is that blunts the power of the shock doctrine. That blunts the power of the shock because even though the grocery store isn't receiving new food, I've got food to eat. Even though uh, the gas coming to my house or the electricity that I would use to cook is out, I've still got you know a, a camp stove and enough fuel to boil water, to sanitize things, to I've got first aid supplies. I've, I've, I've got the basics I need to stay on a relatively even keel through that disaster so that it, it helps alleviate the fear for everybody who's prepped, right? So there's some segment of society that wouldn't have otherwise been able to keep their shit together and that, that can now because they have that preparation in, in advance. Uh, again, it doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're psycho about it. It just means that, you know, every time they go to the grocery store and pick up, you know, food for the week, they pick up an extra bag of rice or an extra bag of dried beans or few extra cans of chili, whatever the case may be, just something to keep them uh, to, to build up their stash of emergency supplies. It also reduces the scattering of the population because if there are people that are, are prepared to, to stay in place, you know, for instance, like I said, if, if my home isn't one that got swallowed up in the earth in the earthquake or, or flooded or whatever, and it's still structurally sound and I can stay here with my supplies, then that's one less person that scatters to another state or another city during that natural disaster. So that, that, that effect of, you know, the people that are taking a Greyhound bus from New Orleans to Portland, Oregon to go to a, a host house, those people are going to have a harder time keeping up with the news of what's happening in the legislature than what I am because I'm still here. 
I'm still here in my town. I'm still communicating with my local first responders and my local government as we get, you know, a hold of what's going on in the disaster. And preppers, they, they, of course, as we said earlier, can be selfish or they can be communitarian. For instance, one of the things that we're working on is trying to build within my family. I have a very large family, and most of us live here in Vancouver or very close by. And with neighbors, you can start to build a community effort to say, you know, if, if, if you're in the natural disaster and I'm in the natural disaster and we know each other because our kids go to school together or whatever, I'll tell you what, it, it would be easier for us to consolidate, you know, to pick one of our houses to consolidate our supplies, our security, our efforts together. And if you build that circle, the bigger that circle, the better. Right, so it can be something that brings the community to get together to uh, prepare for these eventualities in uh, not necessarily as, as much a governmental fashion, but also in, in a private fashion in case, you know, to, to augment what we do through taxation and through government uh, programs. So it can be a very communitarian impulse. And again, by, you know, the armed citizen, also could be somebody who is going to try to prevent you know the the lack of of law and order from getting too out of control uh, if i see somebody you know trying some one of my neighbors getting beat up because he's got uh you know a few uh cans of food in his pantry i'm more likely to be able to help out if i'm prepared physically and mentally and armed and things like that than i am if i'm just waiting around you know waving a put a little writing help on my lawn in spray paint, hoping they show up and help me. There's other benefits outside of natural disasters that prepping can do for you. So one of the things that unions do is what's called strike insurance. Uh, and the idea is part of your union dues is put aside. And what it's for is should we need to strike there's a supplementary income. Another way that that the prepping helps, and I have you know a brother of mine. I have I have a couple of brothers. One of them he he preps pretty heavily. One of the reasons he does it is for you know societal breakdown, natural disaster, all that stuff. But the other reason he does it is because he has a work situation that he works in construction, and that goes up and that goes down. And so when he's out of work for a long period of time, he starts digging into that store in his garage of grains, of dry goods, things like that, to supplement things like unemployment, to supplement his savings. And they have some other forms of income outside of his actual construction work. But, but the idea is when he's out of work for a while, he's got not just for end of the world scenario, but he's got instead of having to go to the grocery store and get everything, he's got pasta. He's got some tomato sauce and things that can, that can keep for a long period of time so that he's just getting some fresh vegetables, fruits, and fresh meats, things like that. Uh, the rest of that stuff he has in his garage, and it can really supplement him, him through a long period of, of unemployment. Up to a couple of months he had a, a problem. Uh, one of his one of his kids had a health problem when they were born. He was able to supplement his 
food budget significantly just using that stuff that was in his garage while while they so that he could take the time off of work and focus on his family and again when you're when you're looking to strike if if the union members generally have this type of thing available you have that much holding power in a strike and therefore your strike will be that much more successful if you have this kind of backstop you have more freedom if you decide that you want to quit a job because you find it to be immoral or exploitive. Uh, and it would also, if it was done more often, if more people had this type of thing that they built up to the best of their ability. Obviously, I make more money than most people. You know, I don't feel rich and I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself rich, but there are a lot of people, and I used to be one of those people that are scraping by paycheck to paycheck a lot more than I am. So not everybody can do this. But if you do to the extent that you can, it makes it so that it, one of the other things that it facilitates is if we do have an idea of a some sort of social social revolution you know I'm, I'm thinking right now of a non-violent of course but like a an, a major economic change a major shift of uh, focus of society if i know that i've got a few weeks worth of food or a couple of weeks worth of food at least i've got my basic needs kind of covered for that upheaval then i'm more likely to go along with it than if i only have two days worth of food in the house, right? If I've only got, you know, a, a can, of <clears throat> a can of, uh, a can of beans and a, and a, and a top ramen in the cupboard, I'm going to be much more conservative about what I'm willing to go along with when it comes to voting in major economic changes, things like that. Even if those things are t for the better in the long term, I'm thinking, damn, you know, I need to make sure that I can eat tomorrow. And, and so it, it helps not only with the actual shock of societal upheaval, uh, the actual shock of a natural disaster or something like that, a terrorist attack, things like that to be prepared, but it also, it also eases people's minds and has that positive externality of, of the added confidence I have knowing that I've got my basic needs taken care of, my family's basic needs taken care of for a short period of time or, or reasonable period of time, I know that, that, that I'm going to be a little bit more open to fighting the good fight in many situations. And like I said, this is not necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying the violent good fight. I'm saying fighting the, you know, the union battle, the unionization, the, a strike, whatever the case may be, you're more likely to play to win if you know that you got your bases covered before you go into it. Now, one of the reasons why the shock doctrine comes up in the Radical Liberal Gun Guy podcast, besides the fact that it's just one of those great things I like everybody to think about, because it's a really good thing to know about. It's a good thing to mentally prepare yourself for. If there's been somebody trying to privatize your schools and it hasn't gone through yet, or it hasn't gone through as fast as they've been advocating, you can be guaranteed that if there's an earthquake, there's a natural disaster, there's a nuclear meltdown or something like that in, your, in a nuclear plant, whatever the case may be, they're going to swoop in and they're going to make that stuff happen because you're going to be busy trying to figure out what you're going to eat today. Right? 
you're going to try and be figuring out how you're going to get out of the disaster area, whatever the case may be, the better prepared you are for the shock doctrine, the better prepared you are to prevent and blunt its impact and at least contain the effects of it when people come in and try to do some crazy stuff that uh, that you and your neighbors never would have voted for. But the other reason is that this mass shooting and the mass shootings before it and whenever there's a particularly heinous crime committed with a gun, the shock doctrine is used for it as well. So that's why you hear Piers Morgan screaming every single day about what an AR-15 does to six-year-olds. Nobody disputes that any gun does terrible things to a child. Nobody disputes that. They're made to stop. They're made to stop an adult. They're made to stop a soldier. A young, strong, strapping, well-armed, partially, at least partially armored adult is what it's made to stop. If I was using an AR-15 for home defense, I'm using it because I want it to stop a man who could possibly strangle me to death. Right? A man who could stab my family to death or shoot them or whatever. Obviously, if it can stop a man who is on drugs, who is psychopathic, whatever the case may be, it will devastate a child. There's no doubt about that. The the problem is that the the shock and horror that we feel with recent events is used cynically, and so people come out with you know Diane Feinstein had that assault weapons ban that basically exempted something like two thousand weapons, and that it banned just about everything else. Uh, the high-capacity magazine bans and things like that. We've already talked about that. Um, what I think is strange is, you know, for instance, I see when in the context of gay rights, in the const- context of uh, free speech, of voting rights and things like that, you know, I, I got a quote on my Facebook today from uh, somebody posted a thing from Rachel Maddow. said, unalienable rights are not subject to vote. Right, and when rights are put up to vote, they generally don't fare well because people look and they say, "Oh, well, I'm, I'm in the majority. I'm not gay, so those people who are gay, I don't really care." That's why they're not. That's why we have these things set aside, these rights set aside that we say, "You know what? You can't take those away. You can't. It doesn't matter." Even if statistically we would be safer if torture worked. It doesn't matter even statistically, purely in a utilitarian sense, the country would be X percent safer if we outlawed Islam. It doesn't matter. It's a right, and you cannot put it up for vote. The same thing applies to the right to keep and bear arms. The right to keep and bear arms is a right. We shouldn't say... You can't have it because you live in a high-crime neighborhood, which I find, again, to be horribly skewed backwards. Why 
camp people in Chicago, the murder capital just about of the United States, worse than it was during Al Capone's days, why can't they own a firearm to protect themselves? People who haven't committed a crime. That's ridiculous. And so the same thing that shock, that horror that we feel when something like Sandy Hook happens is something that people swoop in and try to take advantage of because things like gun registration generally are not viewed favorably. Things like uh, the right to keep and bear arms as an individual right to self-defense is a common, commonly understood principle. And there's a small percentage of people who don't think that you should ever be able to use violence to defend yourself. And those people exploit the shock and the horror of these incidents to try to get things passed that otherwise wouldn't pass. Um, and that's why they, they say, you know, we got 30 to 60 days after this happens and we got to swoop in and we got to get it. I have said before, there are things that I agree would, you know, I, I still agree that there are things that we should reduce the likelihood of guns getting in the wrong hands. But I think that those things should be things that we would rationally debate, things that we would accept without a picture of a grieving father on the screen. Things that we would accept without, you know, a school shooting on the news crawl. If not, then they're not something we should do. Just as if, you know, just the same as we shouldn't have the Patriot Act just because over and over on the screen we see the, the Twin Towers coming down. We shouldn't be passing laws because the only way that we would accept them, the only way that we would not, you know, physically, re viscerally react horribly to them, the only, the only thing preventing that is the fact that we see those smoking ruins on the screen right now and people are still being digging out remains and... And that's, that's not how we should pass laws. It's the shock doctrine. It's exactly the same principle, which is something bad happened. We're going to drum it up and drum it up and drum it up and get you to pass, get, get people to get on board with something they wouldn't normally get on board with. Take people who normally would pr defend their rights and put them on the defensive and make them feel responsible for what this psychopath did in, the, in in this school or in this movie theater or whatever, and I think that's I think that's wrong. Now, before we sign off today, I just wanted to cover a quick point that they made in the book uh, "Armed: New Perspectives on Gun Control," which is really important. I was just watching a David Sirota video today for the Young Turks uh, network, and he was talking about Mayor Bloomberg and how Bloomberg was investing in school board elections all the way in Los Angeles, and how nobody mentions that these people with the these these philanthropist billionaires, Bill Gates and them, that are in investing in 
replacing teachers with technology and replacing public schools with private charter schools and online schools and all this other stuff. Nobody mentions their huge financial interest in doing this. Steve Jobs, you know, wants to sell, you know, wanted to sell, uh, you know, iPads to all the schools to replace textbooks at a, at a, at a hefty premium. It wasn't just out of the goodness of his heart. He wanted Apple to make a ton of money on it. Or they want Microsoft to run it. Or, you know, same thing with Bloomberg. He wants that technology to be provided by his company. These are the same people that dump their money into from their PACs and super PACs and their own private coffers into races in, say, Illinois so that they can affect the outcome of a, of a local election outside of their jurisdiction. And it's hypocritical to say that that's okay. It's hypocritical that a super PAC is bad in one case, but if it just happens to be in this other case that, that I'm for, then all of a sudden it's okay. I reject the idea that, that, that when we... Even as liberals, we come up with policy. It's it's deeper than just we look at the facts and the evidence. We do that. But we also have to have principles. And to say that this guy who does, you know, who's an architect of stop and frisk, who is trying to dismantle our public school system and turn it into a profit center for himself and people like him are somehow good is hypocritical. The other thing that they mentioned in that armed uh, new perspectives on gun control is the fact that in the in the news there's a big tendency to represent the NRA, gun owners of America, and so forth. They are lobbyists, right? They're vilified by that term because we all associate lobbyists with these you know, rich bastards that come in and try to unduly affect our democracy with money. They, they're they the worm tongue whistling or whispering in the ear of our, of our kings and, and, and elected royalty, right? But somehow the Brady campaign, the Violence Policy Center, and similar organizations are treated as advocates, grassroots, even though they're doing the exact same thing. They're lobbyists. A lobbyist for your cause is still a lobbyist. And it's disingenuous and disrespectful to the American people to pretend that the Brady campaign and the NRA are different in their methods. They both advocate a position. They both give to campaigns. They both provide money they both provide support and ground game and whatever the you know publications and pamphlets and advertising they do the same thing they just happen to be on different sides of an issue it's disingenuous when you see folks like Rachel Maddow who comes out and says the NRA are just lobbyists or the gun lobby they're just corporate stooges and then you turn around and have them present somebody from, say, the Brady campaign as if they're just a grassroots activist. It's false. Uh, Viewer Weapon Blog, I think his name is. I have, uh, 
I either have or I'll check it. I will have on YouTube a, a link to his video that breaks down, for instance, moveon.org versus the NRA and the misrepresentations they give. For instance, you know, one of the things that he brought up was Midway USA was the biggest contributor to the NRA. And Midway USA makes magazines. Well, Midway USA has some branded products, but they don't make magazines. They, they get some things branded that are manufactured by other people. <clears throat> and they're, they're kind of like an Amazon.com of uh, firearms-related stuff, hunting gear, reloading ge- equipment and supplies and magazines and everything else. But they're not, they don't manufacture those things. But one of the things that, that he mentions is they have this program called the Roundup. And basically how the Roundup works is if I buy something for, uh, you know, $9.79, I can click a, a, an option that says, do you want to round up and give the change, round up to the nearest dollar, and give the change to the NRA? And that's the bulk of what Midway gives the NRA. So basically what it is, it's not uh, it's not the Midway Corporation giving you know, millions of dollars to the NRA. What it is is the sum total of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that go to midway.com, click that option and give their extra 39 cents or 3 cents or 12 cents or whatever to the NRA willingly. I might not even do it. I'm, I'm not a huge NRA supporter. I think they're too right wing. But the, the, the point of it is, is that what you're what they're doing is because Midway provides that option. It's just like if Amazon had an option where you could do the same thing and give your change, your your last three cents of the dollar or whatever to the Brady campaign. It wouldn't be Amazon necessarily giving that donation or or, or funding that campaign. What they would be doing is just saying what we're going to do is we're going to give people the option of one of these, you know, maybe even a choice of several different advocacy groups, we're going to give the option of using whatever change is left over. And so it's the sum total of several individuals making a choice to give as part of their purchase. Now, if I went to Midway USA and they said, you know, you have, you know, do you want to round up and give that last 50 cents to the NRA? I may or may not make that choice. But that's not Midway giving it to the NRA. That's me choosing to have that extra 50 cents taken out of my bank account to give to the NRA. Or not choosing, whichever the case may be. But anyway, I'll I'll make sure that that's in one of my favorite lists on the YouTube page. And it's important to understand that it's it's a distortion to say that one is a, a lobbyist and one is not. And one is getting funding from such and such and one is not when, you know, just because you disagree. If there is a grassroots anti-abortion group and a grassroots pro-choice group to call one of them a lobby and the other one an advocacy group is, it's a cheap tactic and it's a lie. All right. Well, thank you for joining me for the Rad Lib Gun Guy podcast. It's time to sign out. I've gone on long enough. Uh, There's new gun chat on my YouTube channel feed, and those are not necessarily family-friendly. We get a little bit froggy on those. But uh, if you want to check it out, there's some entertaining conversation on there. It's really long. It's like four hours. I get on about two hours into it. I I usually 
have stuff to do on Saturdays. So I get in late and I stay on late. I was on it for several hours after it ended, talking to some of the folks about, you know, arguing with some libertarians, which usually ends up happening, uh, which is fun. And they're, they're good people. And we, we disagree on many things and we agree on the second amendment and, and it's a good time. The, again, I will give an update when the podcast changes, uh, the hosting service. And again, please give me any feedback that you have on radlibgunguy at gmail.com so that I know if you can hear me better, if you're, uh, if you find the audio quality to be satisfactory and so forth, uh, give me some feedback. And, uh, if you like it, tell a friend, thanks a lot and have a nice day.